Good morning, everyone. I say this every time we meet, and the Lord knows I mean it. I am so thankful. Is this loud enough? That you are committed to the study of the Word of God. And I don't say that because I'm the teacher, whether Evans in here or whether Andy is teaching or Ronald's teaching, whoever. Doesn't matter who's teaching. I am so thankful for that. Because here's what I see, and this isn't in the notes, this is free, and I don't know, I have any idea how I'm going to get through these notes if I do what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. Over the years, 27 plus years, I've had the great privilege and responsibility to meet with many people called counseling. Individuals, husbands and wives, families, <laughs> collections of people. <laughs> and I have found almost, not absolutely, but a very general trend in that. That thems who are weak in their regular study reading, meditation upon the Word of God are usually the ones who are more overcome by the issues of life and begin to find themselves floundering, therefore needing counseling, than those who are consistently in a spiritual habit of regularly fellowshipping with God in his word by the spirit. And so I can't get over this in my mind. Be a people of God's word at the cost of reading magazines, of watching television, of going to sport events, be a people of God's word. That doesn't mean that I don't read magazines. It doesn't mean I don't watch television. It doesn't mean that I don't watch sport events. What I said was make the word of God the preeminent pursuit of your life. Amen? Just had that in my craw this morning. So thank you for being here. And for those of you who have missed last week for whatever particular reason, please hear it online or CD or whatever the class because this is a building one block upon one block upon one block as we're going somewhere. And I don't want you to miss a significant block within this structure and then we begin to build and your structure won't hold it because it missed a significant portion of teaching. Amen. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much. What a word. What a revelation. Father, that you would reveal yourself to us.
at the very highest cost to yourself. So that we would be brought into the fellowship of the Godhead and literally become partakers of your divine nature. Father, thank you for this. Father, thank you for giving us the means to express your holiness, your echad, your uniqueness to the world. Father, thank you for demonstrating most clearly and dramatically who you are in the marriages in the church. And Father, we want to make sure that we ask you by your spirit not to allow Satan to tempt anyone who is not married or who has been married and is not married today for whatever reason to feel second class or left out or in any way inferior. Father, we know this is not the truth. So if anyone, Father, during any of this presentation feels that, we ask that you would, by your spirit, overcome this. Because, Father, we know that in our own families, every single child of ours is absolutely significant to us. So thank you for ministering to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, you remember Deuteronomy 6.4. Everybody should know Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Shema. It's the great Shema. It means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. Remember, we've, we've heard that. That is the great confession of Israel. When Jesus is asked by the uh, lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes this, and then he says, and you shall love the Lord your God, which is following verse 6 in Deuteronomy, I mean, verse 5 in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Here is God, our God, and here is our relationship with him. Here is how we are to respond to this God. We will respond to him in the same kind of love with which he has loved us. Amen? And so this is, the great, this is the great confession of God's people. And this is the great confession of a marriage. If the marriage is to be expressed in one single verse, and maybe there are others, I know that. And I'm not saying this is exclusive. I would say that Deuteronomy 6.4 the heartbeat of God in the marriage so that the world may know in this relationship, this peculiar, unique, unusual relationship of a husband and his wife, that in that relationship, the reality of who God is in himself is to be on display publicly through the way husbands and wives live together, relate together, walk together, minister together, etc. together. Hear, O world, 
Yahweh is God, and he is one, is the announcement to the world through a marriage. Now, you know that word echad, E-C-H-A-D. It expresses two things about God. And in the beginning of this, this morning, your notes are going to be a little different than what I have because I edited them on Saturday, and then Evan had already put them together, and so, but I think we'll be okay. <clears throat> the word echad expresses two things. It expresses the uniqueness of God's existence as the one and only God. And how is that done? The, through the uniqueness of this relationship of marriage. It is the unique relationship upon the earth. And in the uniqueness of this relationship of a husband and a wife, this expresses to all the world that God also is a unique being. He is the one and only God. But the word echad not only expresses the unique existence of God, it also expresses, which we'll talk about this morning, it expresses the uniqueness of God's being, the being of God. Because it is used, the word echad is used as a compound unity. It is used as a word that expresses a plurality within one. Now, when you listen to those who object to the Trinity doctrine in the Bible, it's not there. One of the things they're going to insist on is this. They're going to take you to Deuteronomy 6.4. And they're going to say, you see, the Bible says that God is one. He's not three. He's one. Sarah, he's one. Just one. Now, what do you do with that? If you don't know the significance of these words that are used and you don't understand or have some of the scriptural evidence to the contrary, what do you do with that? We are to be men and women of God to be able to, in our own lives, announce the truth of God and also to defend the truth of God through the scriptures. So, Billy, what do you say? The Bible says he's only one, and you saying he's three. What they fail, and, and I've listened to several of these videos that do this. They fail to look at the word echad, E-C-H-A-D. The word echad does not mean singularity. It means one and only, and it also expresses a compound unity, which we'll show you this morning. So, for instance, we've already seen evidence of this plurality, this compound unity through the use of the plural title Elohim. Remember that? Elohim. Elohim is the plural of the word El, and it is the title of God. God's name is not El. God's name is Yahweh. His title is El or Elohim. My name is not Pastor. My name is Peter. My title is Pastor, Elder, or Old Man. This is a title. And so remember, in, in the beginning, just when God begins to give the Ten Commandments, this is how he says it in, the, in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh, or your Bible may say, I am the Lord. And I'm going to substitute Yahweh for the Lord many, many times because I want to break something in us to see that the word Lord doesn't mean just Lord. It means the name of, it is the name of God. I am Yahweh. 
your Elohim. Oh, Elohim, gods, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods, Elohim, before me. Elohim is used both times. Also, the, we've seen the plurality within the being of God or within the one being of Yahweh. We've seen it expressed in the plural pronouns that refer to the singular God who is called Elohim. Plural pronouns, remember? And I think there's a little list of them in there for you in your notes. Does he have a little list of the four places? All right, I won't go into that. They're plural pronouns. There are other uh, uh, references to this through, throughout the uh, Old Testament. These are the four major places where a plural pronoun references the single God. So these are hints of something that is going on here. And I might say this, very interesting. <clears throat> Do you remember that Judaism practiced idolatry and finally wound up the northern kingdom in 721 and 22 were dispersed to all the nations? Remember that the northern kingdom was essentially destroyed. And the southern kingdom of Judah continued until 586 when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and totally, you know, annihilated what was left of Judah at that time. And those people went into captivity for 70 years. You may have read your Bible. That's kind of like in the Bible. And the issue was idolatry because they were looking for other gods other than God. During this time of exile, the synagogue began to be developed and also began to be developed a different understanding or an emphasis within Judaism concerning the singularity of God because it came so concerning to them that God alone is worship that they began to demand that God in all the references that are in the Old Testament be understood as one, a singularity rather than a plurality. Do you getting what I'm saying here? Interesting, when you look at Jewish commentaries, rabbis of the old days before the exile, they see a lot of these unusual passages and they will be saying there's something very unusual about Yahweh. There seem to be different, distinct, divine persons in Yahweh, but they couldn't figure it out. But yet later on, and you remember during the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were fanatical in denying that. Well, but the history of Israel before all of that intertestamental period and so on was they, they saw something there. There's something there, but we don't understand. And it's just confusing to us. It's, it's, it's a mystery. Maybe one day I'll, I'll get some quotes from some of this, but we'll do that on another time. And so let's look at the uniqueness of God's being. This morning I want to look at some of the scriptures that show that there is a plurality a compound unity within the one being of Yahweh. This echad means not only one and only, but it means a plurality or a compound unity within the one God. So let's look at this. 
first of all, the word, again, echad. We've seen that the word echad means one in Deuteronomy. And that Deuteronomy echad does not always mean absolute singularity, but is also used to express a compound unity. For instance, Genesis 2.24. Remember, the Lord is saying he's... Adam and Eve have come together, and he's brought the woman to the man in Genesis 2.18. And, and then in verse 24, he says what? And the two shall become echad. One. One flesh. Echad. Now, what does that mean? That there is within this relationship two that God sees as, Charlie, what? One. There is a compound unity. There is a plurality within the unity of the marriage. There are two people here. So isn't it interesting that the Lord didn't say, and the two became two, or the two were two. The Lord said that the two will become what? One. Why? Because you see, in the marriage, God is expressively showing us that the joining together of this man and this woman is his most essential way, other than within the context of the church and Christ, that God is in himself a compound unity, not a singularity. In Genesis eleven six, and the Lord, or Yahweh, said, and you remember talking about the people with all the languages at the Tower of Babel, they are one people. Now, how many is, how many is gathered up into that word one? Everybody. Was it just one man standing at the Tower of Babel talking? It is a word, in English we call it a collective noun. Some of you may remember your grammar well enough to remember the teacher talking about a collective noun. It is a word that expresses both singularity and plurality given the context. Sheep. Am I thinking of a singular or a plural? How many of you know? What determines the, uh, uh, the, uh, the number there? The context. The context. It can either be one sheep or the sheep ran over the hill. Thousands of sheep. It's that kind of a word. Then Moses in Exodus 24 came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with echad, one voice. A compound unity. They're just the this unity use, this word echad used as a compound unity is strewn all over the Old Testament. All over it. Now, <clears throat> if the Bible means that God is one, a singularity within himself, it would have used the word Yahid. Y A C H I D. That's the word that means a oneness or a singularity. It's a different Hebrew word. For instance, in Genesis 22, 2, and he said, and the Lord is speaking to Abraham, take your son, your only, Yahir. You see, your only son. You only have one son. And by the way, everybody knows that Abraham didn't have one son. So Bible, God made a mistake, didn't he? Because he has what? What's this son's name? Isaac. What's the other son's name? Ishmael. Is that meaning that the Bible is inconsistent? Well, you see, he says, your only son. Your only son. 
But he has another son who's about, I don't know how old he is at this time, 23, I mean 33, 34-year-old man now. Because Isaac is probably about 20 at this age. He's not a 12-year-old boy. What Liz, that means the Bible is wrong, you see? You can't trust it. But the, the God is speaking about one and only in reference to his purpose, his call. Not to the understanding of how many you have birthed into your family. Israel was God's only son. And yet it was one of many, many nations upon the earth. So when God uses your one and only, sometimes it actually does mean that. But often it means one and only, one in reference to my purpose. I'm ignoring all the others. This is the one. This is the one. So that's what that's talking about. It is a singularity. And there are other references and examples I can give you, but you, I think you have them in your notes. So also, not only is there a compound plurality in Yahweh, but when we begin to read some of the scriptures, we'll only do a, 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 a very couple here. When we look at some of the scriptures, we see that this compound Unity, this plurality within Yahweh, is expressed as distinct divine figures. And this is what began to really throw the rabbis. Because when we look at these scriptures, we're thinking we're looking at a God who is a singularity, yet the scriptures show something unique about this God that indicates or that at least strongly hints that God is not necessarily a singularity, but there's some kind of way there's a plurality. We're seeing distinct divine figures within the one being of Yahweh. You notice how I keep emphasizing the one being of Yahweh. Because Christianity is monotheistic. We believe in one God, although it's called Trinitarian monotheism, not Unitarian monotheism. Unitarian monotheism means God is a singularity. The Unitarians. God is a singularity. Jehovah's Witnesses. God is a singularity. We are a Trinitarian monotheistic religion. Because we see that God has revealed himself not as a singularity, but as a plurality within his one being. Is everybody okay with, are we following? All right, okay. So there are several passages in the Old Testament that present three distinct divine figures. Each is Yahweh. Now make sure you get that. Because what happens is, often critics of Trinity, of Trinitarianism, say that Christians invented the Trinity. We invented the Trinity. This came about as a result of Jesus, and we're trying to make Jesus God, and we understood him to be God, and so we began to come up with a theology that imposed Trinitarianism upon the Scriptures. Well, let's just see if there's anything in the Old Testament that begin to give us hints, because the full reality of this doesn't come until the Incarnation, but we still have hints, and pretty good hints at that. 
So I, again, use the word or the phrase, the one being of God or the one being of Yahweh. I'll use that regularly because we want to make sure we're emphasizing we are a monotheism religion or a faith. In these passages, there are distinct divine figures, and each one is Yahweh. How can that be? I listened to a debate, and this scholar, this scholar, is debating against Trinity, the Trinity. And he says, the problem is the Trinity is unfathomable. It's inexplicable. It can't, we can't, there's nothing, we can't get our minds on it, whatever. And he said, it can't be true because it can't be understood. Oh my goodness. Oh my word. What, what a foolish statement. I mean, how many of you, they, John, where are you? Stand up, John, where are you? No, no, not you, big John. Stand up, stand up a second. Stand up a second. This guy is a Ph.D. student in physics. I dare say he could probably share with us some of these, what do you call them, theories or whatever, that none of us would understand. Can you do that? You think you could do that? I'm not going to ask you to, but don't you think you could? Yeah. How many of you think you could go toe-to-toe with this guy? Sit down. Thank you so much. You know what? Lester, that means this. I can't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. Why? I don't have enough information. Therefore, it's not true. (laughs) Can you imagine anyone arguing that? And yet, these are the kinds of arguments you get against the Trinity. Can you imagine trying to understand God's physics? So, These three distinct figures, divine figures, each one being Yahweh, or Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, and the spirit of Yahweh, or the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord. That's how these three figures appear in the Old Testament. Let's go through some of this. We may have to go to about 1230 today, but I think that'll be okay. Keith won't mind if we miss service today. Let's look at Yahweh first. First of all, Yahweh is the name of the God of Israel. Genesis 3.15. Yahweh, this is my memorial name. This is the name by which I will be known forever. Yahweh is the name of God. That's his name. Yahweh is the name of the Father. Yahweh is the name of the Son. Yahweh is the name of the Holy Spirit. They are differentiated with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is the name, the title, if you would, but the name that expresses his eternal self-existence and his uniqueness within himself. Yahweh is that name. That's the name of God. That's the name that he wants to be known most precisely. So when we're talking about Jesus, he is the son of Yahweh. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, he is the spirit of Yahweh. We're talking about the Father, he is known as Yahweh. He's not the father of Yahweh. So in Isaiah 63, 16, 
the word is saying, addressing God, you, O Yahweh, are our Father. So, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is God many, 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 many times. But there's also this figure called the angel of Yahweh. Now, the word for angel is mlak, M-L-A-K, and all it means is a messenger, a sent one. A sent one, for instance... In 1 Samuel 23, 27, a messenger, Malak, came to Saul. A messenger. So we're not talking about a winged being here. It's just a messenger. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty five, 25, David told the messenger, the same Hebrew word. Or you could have put correctly, David told the angel. I mean, send an angel, a messenger. So first of all, the word in and of itself does not have anything specifically to do with God in the essence of the word itself. Only within the context do we know the function and the significance of the word angel. Now, the, word, the phrase, the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord, you've all heard of that, is used about 57 times in the Old Testament. And each use, the context, and each use, the context will reveal that this angel is a divine figure, is Yahweh. It is a distinct divine figure, Yahweh. And I'll just have a couple of references here, but there are many, many more. For instance. And you may have a Bible with you. You might want to open your Bible to look at this. But in Genesis 16, you may remember Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham looks up. And all of a sudden. I'm sorry. Hagar. I'm, I'm jumping ahead to 18. Hagar is sent out into the wilderness. You remember? Sarah says, hey, get rid of this woman. Get her out of my sight. And Abraham goes to God and God says, do what she asks you to do. So Hagar is in the wilderness now, alone. That's the context here. And in verse 9, 10, and 11, and if you have a Bible, you may want to underline some of this stuff. It's good to use your Bible as a textbook because it is. It's God's textbook. In verses 9, 10, and 11, you will see the phrase, the angel of the Lord spoke to her. Do you see that? You might want to underline those. The angel of the Lord spoke to her. Now, what happens is, thems who don't believe in the Trinity just say, this is just a messenger from God. That's all it is, just a messenger from God. And on the face of it, I would not contest that if all we see is the angel of the Lord spoke to her. But you see, we see something more than that. You see, because look at verse 10. Everybody look at verse 10. What does the angel of the Lord say to Hagar? He says to Hagar the very same thing that Elohim or the God of creation tells Adam and Eve or at least expresses his purpose in Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. Remember, let us make man in our image and then let them what? Multiply. Do you remember that in Genesis 1.28? So it is only God who can command and express, let this happen to you. 
An angel can't do that. It doesn't have that kind of authority or power. So the angel says this in verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your offspring. It doesn't say the angel of the Lord says, Yahweh will do it. The angel of the Lord says what? I will do it. Only God has that ability and prerogative and power and authority to do that. So you see, there's a strong proof text, what? That very early on in Genesis, Yahweh is beginning to express himself in a distinct and unique way. And so all of a sudden you have the angel of Yahweh and then you have God himself speaking when the angel of Yahweh speaks. See, no angel can say this. Then look at verse 13. Skip down to 13. She says about Yahweh who spoke to her. You see where it says the Lord who spoke to her? You are a God of seeing. She calls this angel God. She calls this angel God. Yahweh who spoke to her is understood by her to be God. Go to Exodus 2, 16. I'm sorry, Exodus 3, sorry, Exodus 3, verses 2 to 16. You remember Moses standing before the burning bush. Again, get your pens out. In this, these verses, the angel of Yahweh is also identified as Yahweh himself. There is a distinction of divine figures. In verse 2, you see where I am? The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Does everybody see that? That's the controlling thing. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Now, when the man in the, in the uh, uh, debate said, it's an angel. God just spoke through the angel. It was just a messenger. Okay. Maybe so. But then look in verses 7, 4, 7, 15, and 16. And who's speaking? Who is speaking in verse 4? Who's speaking in verse 7, 15, and 16? Who does it say? Say it again. Does it say the angel of the Lord? Or does it say Yahweh? All of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses, and then Yahweh is speaking. Yahweh himself. It doesn't say Yahweh is speaking through the angel, or the angel is saying Yahweh's words. It says Yahweh appears as an angel, or the angel of the Lord, in the first verse, second verse there, and then in verse 4, 7, and what is it, 15 and 16, it is Yahweh himself who is speaking to them. Then in also verse 4, 6, 11 through 16, the angel is called God. Do you see that? You have three. You have the angel of the Lord. Then you have Yahweh of the Lord. And then you have God or Elohim. You have three references there. And then again in 14 to 15, the angel expresses his eternal name, Yahweh. You know, there's a real interesting, if you turn to Judges 13, this is the chapter about Samson's parents. 
being uh, that the Lord appearing to Samson's parents. This is what that chapter is all about. Chapter 13 of Judges. And in verse 3, it says, the angel of Yahweh. And then it uses the word angel, the phrase angel of Yahweh, in 3, 13, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, and 21. I don't know whether you have that, these in your notes, do you? I may have put this in after. So let me repeat that again. The angel of Yahweh, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, in ver- uh, chapter 13 of Judges, appears in verse 3, 13, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, and 21. He appears as Yahweh in verse 18, 8. Let, let me do this right. The angel of the Lord is identified as Yahweh in those verses I just gave you, 3, 13, 15. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm talking about? And then in verse 8, 16, 19, and 23, I'm going to have to make sure I do my notes right here. I had it right. The angel of the Lord, those, then he's Yahweh in 8, 16, 19, and 23. You see that now? I think you can probably see where I am. Then he is a man, the man of God, the man, he's called a man in 6, 8, and 10 through 11. For instance, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Manoah is Samson's daddy. Look at verse 8. Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh has appeared. Yahweh has spoken to them. So we had those distinct figures. And all of a sudden, listen to what he says in verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, O Lord, please let the man of God you sent come again to us and teach us. And so the angel of the Lord appears as a man of God, as a man to these people. And yet he's the angel of the Lord, and yet he's Yahweh. And so you see, when the Jewish scholars are looking at all this, they're puzzled. And you can understand if they believe that Yahweh is a singularity. How does this work? What is going on here? The spirit of Yahweh. I won't go into great detail here, but again, the spirit of Yahweh is also mentioned 27 times in the Old Testament as a distinct divine figure. And one of the men who, again, argues against the Trinity says, the spirit of Yahweh is always the power of God. The spirit of God is always the power of God. And he's correct. But he says the spirit of God is only the power of God, and he's incorrect. And so I can't remember the verse right offhand. I should be able to remember it. But in the Old Testament, a couple of times, it is the Holy Spirit who is doing something, and yet he can be grieved. Can we grieve power? Can you grieve power? Only a person can be grieved. But let me go to this last one. Isaiah 48, and this is probably one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament that clarify to us or identify for us that within the one being of Yahweh, there exists distinct divine figures, that Yahweh is a compound plurality of divine figures 
within himself. So Isaiah 48, 12 to 16. Let's look at verse 12, 13, and 16, where the God of creation is speaking to his people. So look at verse 12. The speaker introduces himself, what? As the first and the last. Do you see that? Where else have you heard that word first and the last? Who says that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last? Who says that? Only Jesus says that. But in this, you see, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He is saying about himself in the New Testament what God, Yahweh, says about himself in the Old Testament. And so the speaker says, I am, he is the first and the last. And he uses the word anihu. Is your, does yours have anihu, A-N-I, and then the next word, H-O, anihu. That's the word I am. I am. And you'll see I am, especially in 45 of Isaiah, expressed several times. Anihu is translated into the Greek with ego ami. E-G-O-A-I-M-I. I'm sorry, E-I-M-I. So anihu is the Hebrew of I am. Ego ami is the Greek of I am. It's the name that God identifies himself and references himself. I am. Remember, I am the self-existent one. And so that, that uh, uh, come on, come on, come on. Um, what is it? The being verb. That, that being verb is in the Yahweh. It's the same part. I don't know quite how to say it. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But it's within that same context. I am and Yahweh have the same understanding of I am in myself continually existing. And so remember in John eight fifty eight. What does Jesus say that drives these men absolutely bananas? He's talking about Abraham and that they're not offspring of Abraham, not physically but spiritually. And they were saying, hey, you know, Abraham's been dead all long time. You're not even 50 years old. Who are you saying that Abraham saw my day and yet rejoice? Who are you? And Jesus in 858 of John says this spectacular, and he's already said the I am several times, but this is the most explicit. Before Abraham was, in other words, before Abraham was born, ego ami. Ego ami. In other words, I am the one in the Old Testament, Yahweh, who said, Anihu, I'm the same one. I'm the same one. And they understood that because look at verse 59. They didn't welcome that. They wanted to destroy him. So the problem was he not only made himself the Messiah, which, hey, that could be tolerated. There were a lot of goopball messiahs. But he made himself the son of God who is the Messiah. Putting those two together, that's it. We can't tolerate this man. Putting the two together, the son of God who is the Messiah. You see, because there were many messiahs, many anointed men who... God, whom God gave to Israel for ministry, but there was only one Messiah who was the Son of God as the Messiah. Then look at verse 13 in 48 of Isaiah. Then in verse 13, this one who is the I am, the Anihu, identifies as the creator when he says that his hand, my hand, has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has spread out the heavens. This is the creator. This is the God of Genesis 1-1 who is speaking here. Now look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. 
And now Yahweh, God, has sent me and his spirit. What is going on, Patrice? Yahweh God, the Lord God, you see, has sent who? Me. Who's me? The one who's been speaking. I am the first and the last. I am the one who laid the foundation of the world. That's the one who's speaking here. This is the God of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. This is that God. That God sent me, Yahweh, the creator, and the spirit of Yahweh. How can this be? Because you see, there is within the one being of God three distinct, equal, divine, eternal persons or figures. And we're going to discover this in the New Testament. And we're going to look at the, some of the passages. But I want you, as we close today, to look during the week at one passage in particular. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Look at that passage. And as you look at that passage, keep in mind what we have been saying. That in the one being of Yahweh, there are three co-equal, co-eternal, distinct, divine figures or persons. Each one fully God in himself but not by himself. Each one possessing fully the nature of God. Does that make any sense? You see, because when you get a philosophy or a theology that absolutely cannot make any sense to the mind of man, you know it did not come from the mind of man. It came from outside the mind of man. Amen? So next week we'll go into the New Testament and begin to look at the relational and uh, uh, active components and um, how the, the three persons of the Trinity function together.